Hello and welcome back to the Hempson's Health and Social Care Law Podcast. My name is Graham Trigg. I've got with me today Stephen Evans from our healthcare advisory team in the Harrogate office. How are you, Stephen? Fine, thank you, uh, Graham. And hello to anyone who's listening uh, to this. Um, but an interesting topic today about how to uh, deal with um, some practical issues in mental health. So uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to talking to you about it. Excellent, excellent. So what we thought we'd do today is look at uh, some of the questions that our clients have been raising, some of the issues that they've been facing from, from a mental health perspective. Um, clear, and obviously within the, the context of the uh, coronavirus pandemic, uh, we're you know, several weeks in now since Stephen, we, you, you did our first uh, podcast and uh, clearly things have moved on the pace. Um, the messaging has changed slightly. We appear to be through the peak, but still these issues are, are out there. Uh, and I think one of the most regularly asked questions uh, from a mental health client since the lockdown um, is, is actually electronic signatures. Can, can, can we use electronic signatures to help maintain distance and, and minimise infection risks? Uh, well, it's it is a um, an interesting um, question, Graham. Actually, um, I, I covered this in a webinar um, a, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, somebody asked a question during that webinar, which which caused me to reflect further. Um, and I have put a an answer to the questions that were asked um, up uh, on our website. So a more detailed answer than I'm actually going to give here. Um, I don't have a problem with uh, electronic signatures as such. Um, where and, and, and by signature, I mean um, just typing somebody's name in, somebody typing their name in with the intention of that standing as their signature. Uh, to me seems to be um, absolutely fine. Uh, and additional information on our website explains uh, the process for that. Where there's a problem um, in mental health law is actually using um, forms electronically and particularly in deliver seeking to deliver or send them electronically. And there's various uh, parts, not particularly in the act itself, but in the regulations um, which um, uh, talk about how documents are served or delivered. And those have been interpreted um, in, in a further document called the Reference Guide to the Mental Health Act as um, sometimes requiring delivery by hand. Um, and that that's where you can then hit a problem because delivery by hand um, uh, see appears to exclude um, delivery um, electronically. Um, I think the the starting point on it can be that the the reference guide, like the code of practice, is guidance. It's it's not um, uh, uh, binding, so it can be arguably departed from. Um, if there are good reasons to do that. Um, and then to sort of think, well, what's important? And I think that it, it is important for compliance that the person who needs to actually receive the documents um, does have a, a printed copy. Um, but it it seems would seem odd to me if it wasn't possible to actually send 
that document to somebody um, and then for it to be printed and then for it to be delivered when the individual who needed to receive it actually had a printed copy. That does present some practical difficulties. How do you know they've got it? How do you know they've actually printed it? How do you know, you know it, that, that, yeah. that has actually been delivered? Um, it's not insurmountable. But my um, advice is uh, broadly, especially when you're dealing with medical recommendations for admission to hospital, try best practice would be to stick to stick to the way they're they're currently done yeah um i don't have much of a problem with them being signed electronically but but print them off print them hard copy um and get them to people um well by hand um if at all possible there is meant to be guidance coming out uh -huh. um, national guidance um, but we seem to have been waiting that for a couple of weeks at least and um, I'm starting to suspect that they're facing the same problem I did when I looked at it in more detail <laughs> yeah it all sounds hunky-dory and lovely to start off with and then you get into the, the nitty-gritty and start to say ah what do we do about that um, I think it could be resolved uh, um, electronic signatures on various documents I don't have a problem with insofar as the statutory documents are concerned see if you can stick to uh, normal process for the time being um, and it may that may change non-statutory documents um, uh, then uh, I think that those are those will be fine sent electronically okay brilliant thank you right so, so the, ne the, the next one up uh, that, we, that we have is about isolation and testing Clearly difficult issues for mental health patients, but we, we do need to isolate and test patients in order to keep them uh, and others safe. Uh, so what are, the, what are the issues that our clients need to be aware of here? And well, I'll, I'll, I'll see if I can keep, yeah. keep, keep this one a little bit tighter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, the, uh, there's, a, there's a number of issues. The general advice, although it does seem that the, the general advice has, has been directed more towards acute hospitals, it has to be said. Um, is the hospital should be testing anybody that's now coming in um, to hospital and seeking to isolate people while uh, awaiting the result of the test and if they test positive to uh, continue to further isolate them. Um, now the, the, the difficulty with in, in mental health is that there is um, the two classes of, of individual who can generally come into hospital are the people who are detained under the Mental Health Act and there are the people who come in um, without being detained under the Mental Health Act, the informal patients. Yeah. Um, and in either case, by the nature of um, the condition of the individuals, they may or may not be able to understand um, what's involved in, in isolation and why they're being isolated and what's involved in testing. So there's quite a few issues there to really unpick. Um, what I would say is that you do have to be, one of the things you have to be aware of is um, whether you are creating a situation of a deprivation of liberty um, because of the isolation. Um, and that has two possible consequences. One, does it amount to a seclusion 
for the purposes of the Mental Health Act Code of Practice, because that has special rules about supervision and so on. Mm -hmm. And the second is, is it authorised if there is a deprivation of liberty? So after that broad picture, let me see if I can, can unpick a bit. Um, the, the, the crucial point, the really important point is that we have people here who are being admitted to hospital because of concerns about their mental health, um, but we're testing and isolating potentially because of a physical health condition. So in broad terms, what we do about the risk of coronavirus infection is not going to be covered by the provisions for treatment under the Mental Health Act. Mm -hmm. um, maybe some cases where you can argue it is if their particular anxiety or uh, mental health condition or whatever is being triggered by concerns about infection. Um, but in broad terms, the, the two don't, don't particularly overlap. So the what I would say is where people are being um, uh, uh, brought in with the parallel problems uh, of mental and physical health, it's vitally important that they are carefully monitored for both. So you've got to keep an eye on their mental health, which might be affected by isolation and might be affected by the fact that everybody looking after them is going to be dressed in PPE and, and looking a bit weird. Yeah. Um, and you've got to look after their physical health because at the end of the day, we're, we're testing to see if they're infected with coronavirus. And if they are, uh, that can obviously have extremely um, serious consequences. So um, when we're talking about isolation, it must be kept in mind that that, that doesn't mean you're not keeping an eye on anybody uh, for a period of time. They've got to be watched um, very carefully interacted with and cared for. Um, one issue that might arise is whether in fact you need to move them to the acute hospital because the um, uh, any infection and the symptoms from the infection are actually becoming more of a problem than their mental health. Mm -hmm. um, so close liaison with the acute hospital is important. Under the Mental Health Act, the case law has said that um, trusts running hospitals do have implied powers uh, to um, impose restrictions um, uh, and conditions which um, uh, are necessary for the safe and therapeutic um, delivery of care uh, and, and running of the hospital. So I think to a large extent, those powers can be used to say, this is how we're going to deal with this issue. Um, if you're coming in um, and you're tested and we need to isolate you, um, then those, the power that we're going to use to isolate you is the implied power under the Mental Health Act. Um, that works particularly well with people who are already detained under the Mental Health Act. The implied power to run the hospital still applies if the patient is informal, but they can turn around and say, well, on those circumstances, I'm not going to stop, I'm going to leave. And then you're in the position of having to decide whether to detain that patient. Um, where the patient themselves lacks capacity, I think those uh, to make the decision to agree or not, then I think those um, 
uh, implied powers still apply. You might have, where you have difficulty is how can we actually do the testing? Yeah. And on the whole, I think that that's going to have to be by consent with the people that have capacity or it could be done under the Mental Capacity Act in their best interests if they lack capacity, mm -hmm. or your fallback position could be uh, to liaise with the colleagues in um, public health, uh, public health officers who under the Coronavirus Act have powers to require people to go to or stay in a place in order to be tested. Yeah. Uh, what you'd need to do is whether they think those powers extend sufficiently to routine testing of people coming into hospital um, as opposed to um, targeted testing of people who are suspected yeah. uh, to, to have the condition. Um, I don't think you can impose testing under the Mental Health Act, uh, except in it would have to be quite, um, uh, uh, there'd, there'd have to be a clear link between the, the patient's mental health condition and concern about infection and that that would need to be relieved by actually testing the individual mm -hmm. uh, or potentially relieved by testing the individual and being able to let them know whether they do or don't actually have it. Yeah. Um, longer term, if you're going to isolate somebody because they have infection, um, then if they're detained under the Mental Health Act, that's, um, that's authorizing a detention. Um, I don't think we need to worry too far um, about where, what the purpose of the detention actually is um, uh, because they are being detained in the hospital under the Mental Health Act. Um, if they're informal and they don't want to stay, consider detaining them, or again, speaking to the public health officers who do have powers under the Coronavirus Act to uh, require people to be isolated. So it's a, it's it's not straightforward but there are powers there and if it's not clear what you're operating under the you know pick up the phone give us a ring and uh, we can talk through any particular circumstances makes sense yeah okay i didn't say you. that was i did say that was going to be shorter and it wasn't so we <laughs> i think i think we're we're moving on to some of the less uh, was it uh, lacking in brevity it made up in, it, what it lacked in brevity it made up in clarity it's fine it's fine <laughs> Right, let's move on. Uh, remote assessment. The whole world is meeting remotely. We're doing this podcast remotely. Um, how about remote assessment? Can, can, can we use Skype, Teams, Zoom? Probably not Zoom. It's got a few holes uh, for yeah. remote assessment of patients. Um, I don't see why not. Um, again, as ever, subject to some caveats. Um, the first thing is there should be a reason for using remote assessment. Um, so it's not, I don't think it's enough to just say, oh, we're in the coronavirus pandemic, we're using remote assessment. You've got to take one step further than that and say why um, it's, it's actually um, not appropriate to, to, to do a face-to-face -face assessment, um, especially now that uh, to some degree, the um, lockdown restrictions have, have have been lifted to a small degree, but 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 they're not quite as as strict as as they were. So you need to think through why why can't I do this? Um, 
face to face. Um, the risk of infection and cross infection uh, might well be uh, a good reason, but it's not enough to just say um, we're in the pandemic. Um, the, the, the key for, I, I think, for the um, remote assessment is what is the quality of the information that you're getting? So I think this is really one for the clinicians um, to carefully consider for themselves. Are they getting sufficient, um, sufficient good information to be able to make the assessment they're, they're, they're trying to make? Mm -hmm. So um, video links can be really good, um, but there's an awful lot in mental health of, of, of a need to take note of um, non verbal uh, signs, uh, yeah. non-verbal communication. Um, if your link's not brilliant and you keep losing video or if you the, the, the um, sound doesn't match with the vision or mm -hmm. if just seeing somebody's head and shoulders isn't quite enough uh, because you don't know what, they're, what the, the, the hands are doing and they're fidgeting and, yeah. and so on. Um, uh, then, you know, you, you may not be getting sufficient information to form a proper assessment and you probably need to be um, slightly cautious. Um, again, uh, I think there is a difference between most of the assessments that are needed and ones for initial detention of individuals to admit them to hospital for the first time. Um, that's a big step uh, and uh, I think you want to be very clear about the quality of the information that you have there um, and where at all possible I'd avoid using remote assessment for, for that. You may also find um, that um, AMPs are not overly keen on uh, clinicians using uh, remote assessment for those um, uh, medical recommendations for section two and section three detentions. Um, so thinking then what happens if the remote assessment we're not keen on the quality but we need to maintain some safety what else could we do? Um, I think thinking about escalating to uh, is, is there any way to create a room um, uh, for assessments where there's a physical barrier but still an ability to communicate uh, between the two parts of the room, uh, even using big rooms so you can stay a distance apart. Um, uh, again, I come back to the condition of the patient and where they're seeing the, 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 the doctor uh, or whoever dressed in um, PPE is going to be far more disturbing than doing the assessment over video, I think yeah. is, a, is a consideration. Absolutely. Um, I did actually, when we did the webinar, um, just because it, it came into my head, because it's the way we communicate with my mother-in-law at the moment, talk about, <laughs> uh, talk about standing outside and, um, uh, 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 and the other person being in, in, well, one person being inside and one person being outside and, and, and um, talking through uh, the open window and it was quite rightly uh, flagged to me that that might not be the most confidential way to conduct an assessment. Um, so uh, I think it does very much depend on the circumstances. Absolutely.
Sure. So, okay. So, so what about the AC and RC roles? I mean, can they be operated remotely? Um, again, I don't see why not, but it is in, it is down to the uh, individuals acting in those roles to decide um, whether they're able to do the job. So, in in particular, um, the um, responsible clinician um, role requires um, has a lot of control over the, the the patient and a lot of decisions need to be made but the legal definition of the person who is the responsible clinician is it's the approved clinician who has overall charge um, overall uh, responsibility um, for the care of the patient and that's a matter of fact so if you can do that job remotely if you can take that responsibility remotely, you can be the, the RC. Um, and that ties in with the idea of, you know, electronic signatures on things like leave of absence or um, uh, other documentation that needs to be completed. Um, if you don't feel you can adequately have that level of control, then you um, are not the RC and uh, another, another uh, AC uh, will, will be the responsible clinician it's a matter of identifying who has that and and but you need to be clear about these things so that the patient you know if there's any doubt about it it needs to be sorted out and a decision made so that the patient knows who um is actually responsible for them okay right so let, let's move on slightly away from remote operations um i know there have been no changes as such to the mental health act but how has lockdown um affected things like um, Section 17 leave, for example? Well, yes, it's again, it's it's interesting in trying to explain um, perhaps to um, to patients. Um, the. Again, we've changed very slightly because lockdown is not quite as tight as it was. Yeah. Um, having just changed this week. Um, but I think the effectively we are expected to support the government lockdown. There are good reasons for it. Um, and so Section 17 leave should be it should be taken into account when deciding whether or not to give leave. So, for example, how long for how frequently um, where the individual is permitted to go. Um, but that, I think, has to be balanced. You have to bear in mind that one of the reasons to leave your um, home, if you were at home, has always been uh, medical. Yeah. And if you've got patients who really benefit from going out more often, I don't see any reason why they can't be given Section 17 leave um, in order to go out more often. Mm -hmm. I think um, a couple of practical things uh, would be does the patient not only understand that they're getting Section 17 leave, um, but do they understand um, what the restrictions on the general public are? Mm -hmm. um, so, in, so, you know, that, um, that there may, if, if they do go out, they would be expected to stay away from people. If they did go into a shop, they would be expected um, to, to abide by any instructions in relation to the shop. If the, if the patient benefits from going out but can't cope or 
take on board those additional um, requirements, then it might be necessary to consider whether to give leave um, accompanied um, by a member of staff, uh, for example. Um, uh, there's also uh, a slightly tongue-in-cheek, uh, but it does seem to have been an issue in places. If you have particularly zealous police force um, who uh, patrol and ask people questions if they see them out um, uh, too often, um, then is there a way of dealing with that? Um, mm -hmm. It might, with the patient's agreement, be possible for them to have a letter explaining uh, why they're out on medical grounds. But of course, that would, at least um, in, in part, depending on how carefully that's worded, um, let the police know that you know, they are receiving treatment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, again, it's, it's thinking things through, it's thinking ahead, it's just trying to be slightly more careful about how things are expressed and done and understood than normal, but there's no reason why people shouldn't have leave. Okay, brilliant. So we've seen in other contexts, lockdowns brought about changes to court hearings, processes. Um, what about mental health tribunals? Um, have, have their processes been adjusted at all? They have, um, uh, again, to sort of try and make things um, uh, uh, run without the need for uh, so many hearings and face-to-face -face meetings. And again, coming back to remote assessment, you'll hear what the tribunal's done. If the tribunal can do it, why can't other people? Yeah. So um, they altered the rules so that decisions can be made by a single judge. Uh -huh. um, so uh, uh, the judge sits alone without um, the lay member or the medical member of the tribunal. Um, they have suspended um, examinations by the medical member, so they're not taking place. It is provided um, uh, that the um, in the rules now that the um, judge can consult with one or more other members of the tribunal, and instead of that being any conversation taking place in the actual hearing that the implication is that that would be the judge and the, the other tribunal member talking together um, without anybody else listening but that needs to be recorded and people need to be aware of it um, so that it can be uh, questions can be asked and answered about what was discussed yeah um, and they are conducting the hearings remotely um, okay. So they, they are using um, video links to do that. Um, in fact, th this is one of the areas where, where there may well have already been a degree of uh, experience within trusts, which will help inform how useful it is for other remote assessments, how easy it is for patients to deal with that, how well they respond to it, um, and um, how good the information um, that's obtained is yeah but those are the main changes but there's no change to when you need a tribunal or um, mm -hmm. uh, or how to apply for a tribunal okay fantastic and um, what about managers hearings I know there's no formal rules of those but um, has anything changed there nothing's changed 
because there are no formal rules, nothing's formally changed. There isn't anything particularly to change. Again, there's there's no been no change to the need for hearings or when hearings should take place. Um, it may well be um, that uh, some of the times when um, managers' hearings are suggested in the code of practice, you can say that's not practical at the moment. There's a good reason not to hold a manager's hearing at that point, particularly if you're aware that the patient is also going to be getting a tribunal hearing in the near future. Um, and the other thing with managers' hearings is that you have to have at least three managers because a discharge can only take place where at least three um, managers agree. Um, so you, you'd need to use um, if you're going to do it by video, again, there's no reason why you shouldn't do it um, in that way, following the tribunal um, uh, example, um, but you'd need to have more people um, involved. Um, and uh, again, uh, I think the chair of the um, managers would, would need to keep a tight grip on the, on the meeting mm -hmm. yeah. just to make it practical. Yeah. Okay, right. So let's um, move slightly to a slightly different area now. Um, we've heard that some mental health clinicians are getting involved in advanced care planning. Um, what, advi what advice would you have for, for, for them? Uh, approach with care, um, <laughs> uh, I think. Um, uh, not quite red flashing lights because I think advanced care planning is is very important and I think it's one of the things that the pandemic has flagged is not well done um, and is generally not done that much in advance um, and I think we can improve on that generally it's been a topic of debate for, for, for quite a long time anyway but this is this has sharpened the focus um, so there are lessons actually from the pandemic that we can take away for advanced care planning going forward um, but what I, I think the, uh, uh, in particular, psychiatrists should be careful about um, is they may get, they may find that they are drawn into discussions about um, whether you know, particular people who lack capacity um, should have do not resuscitate decisions or should be should or should not be moved into hospital if they become infected and this sort of thing. Those actual questions, I think, are much more for the um, physical health physicians. Um, and if, if the psychiatrists find they're being asked, oh, well, does this person have capacity? Can they make this decision? I think they should be very careful about what, what's going on in the background uh, and not getting drawn into making comments that are taken in any way as a sort of a, a, a blanket okay to um, make decisions about everybody in a care home, for example. Yeah. Uh, and we've seen on the news these, um, uh, uh, the idea that, you know, decisions being made that nobody in the care home will be moved to hospital if they become infected or everybody in the care home will have a DNA CPR, uh, do not attempt CPR decision. Um, blanket decisions are really not um, the way to go. They're, they're, it's very, well, you can't defend them 
in relation to advanced care planning. It has to be an individualized decision. Yeah. Um, so just be careful what you've been asked to do. Okay, fantastic. Um, another area we've had quite a few questions on is discharge arrangements. Um, changes we need to be aware of there? It's, we're, 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 we're getting now Graham, more, more sort of um, theoretical as we, as we yeah. go through. <laughs> um, there are changes, um, but you need to work out whether in your local area they are actually in place. Um, there is provision for local authorities uh, under the Coronavirus Act to take advantage of what are being termed easements, um, which uh, sort of effectively reduce their obligations under the CARE Act. Um, the vast majority of local authorities are not taking advantage of those easements. Mm -hmm. um, uh, as far as I, I, I wouldn't like to give you an exact number, but it, it's sort of, I, I was hearing, you know, five, seven, mm -hmm. th those sorts of numbers rather than okay. uh, tens. Yeah. Um, if they haven't taken advantage of them, then in theory, there should be no changes. But like everybody else, they're under a lot of pressure. So I think the, the, the thing for discharge arrangements, think even earlier about where you're going with discharge, what might need to be in place, who do you need to talk to about it, um, give everybody a bit more time uh, yeah. to try and sort everything out. Okay, good practical stuff. Right. One of the old favourites, deprivation of liberty. Um, always prompts a great deal of questions, pandemic or, or no pandemic, uh, whatever the circumstances, deprivation of liberty clearly is one of the most fundamental parts of freedom, free, uh, of, our, of our freedoms in, in this country um, and, and the safeguards around that. So um, have has the Coronavirus Act changed anything to the safeguards here in, with respect to mental health? No, it hasn't. It's not changed any part of the Mental Capacity Act at all, and there are no plans to change any part of the Mental Capacity Act. So whether or not somebody has um, the capacity to agree to what would otherwise be a deprivation of liberty is, is stays the same. If there is a deprivation of liberty, the way in which it is um, authorised stays the same. Uh, no changes um, at all. And only this week, the, um, uh, the senior judge in the Court of Protection, um, Mr. Justice Hayden, has written to local authorities emphasising that point. Um, there is no change in the law. Apparently, the, the Court of Protection has seen a, a fall off in um, what are called COPDOL 11 applications to authorise deprivations of liberty in the community. Uh -huh. uh, so there's a degree of concern that as an issue, it is not getting the attention it should be. Yeah. Um, and, and what he points out in his letter is the, the law hasn't changed um, and the requirement to authorise deprivations of liberty has not changed. Under the, in, in mental health um, circles, um, the dep deprivation of liberty certainly in hospitals is often taken care of by detention under the Mental Health Act. Yeah. Um, but if it isn't, uh, then it is something that has to be considered and appropriate applications made for authorizations to uh, to be obtained from the local authority. Okay, and I think we're, we're coming to the to, towards the end of this podcast now. But final question I want to ask is uh, again, we talked about the Coronavirus Act in in the first podcast that we did, and I know that there are changes 
uh, provisions in the Act to bring changes to the Mental Health Act as such, but but they haven't been brought in yet, have they? Uh, I just wondered whether it's worth just touching on on that and and finding out what the latest position is here. They haven't been brought in yet, and frankly, with the government being keen to sort of um, indicate that we're we're moving into the 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 the, the next phase of relaxing restrictions and moving away from the um, height of the pandemic, I, I very much doubt that they will be. Um, the, the only thing that I can think that might influence that is, is we are hearing a lot of um, anecdotal um, stories that um, there's a huge increase in anxiety and, and such like from people who have been in lockdown, from people who are worried about the Coronavirus Act, <clears throat> that might lead to a surge in demand on mental health services as in fact we come out of the crisis. It's still theoretically possible that that these changes to the Mental Health Act could be brought into force because they're intended to help free up workforce and in particular doctors. So if there's a lot of extra pressures on doctors because of those uh, problems, they still could be brought in. I think it's unlikely. Um, I, I am hearing that medical directors of trusts would like them to be brought in. Mm -hmm. um, but the, but there isn't really the evidence that services have been so stretched that it's needed. Um, and I checked today and uh, they would be brought in by statutory instrument. There is there is nothing um, that's been put before Parliament to to change that process as, as yet. OK, fantastic. Stephen, thanks so much for that. And it's been a, a quick rattle through what's an incredibly complicated area of, of law. Um, thanks so much for your time. Um, listeners, if, if the listeners to this podcast uh, have any issues that you'd like some specific advice from Stephen uh, on, on this area, please do get in touch with him. Uh, his uh, contact details are on the website. Uh, his phone number is 01423 724010. Um, website www.hempsons.co.uk. Um, all that really uh, remains for me to say is uh, thanks very, very much for listening. Um, please do like, subscribe to, share the podcast. Um, even better, write a review of the podcast on, on, on your podcast app. But um, we will be back very, very soon with another edition of the Health and Social Care Log podcast. And all I have to say is thanks very much for listening. And to Stephen, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, Graham, and thank you, everybody else. Stay safe. Goodbye. Thank you.